You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 404, Fox Pops, get rid of them. Who cares what the public thinks? Sliding doors moments in real life and why there won't be a biopic of Led Zeppelin. That's all coming up after Gorillas and Clint Eastwood. I ain't happy. I'm feeling glad I got sunshine. In a bag, I'm useless, but not for long. The future is coming on. I ain't happy. I'm feeling glad I got sunshine. In a bag, I'm useless, but not for long. The future is coming on. It's coming on. It's coming on. It's coming on. It's coming on. Finally, someone let me out of my cage. Now, time for me is nothing, cause I'm counting no A's. Nah, I couldn't be there. Nah, you shouldn't be scared. I'm good at repairs, and I'm under each snare. Intangible, that you didn't think, so I command you to. Panoramic view, look, I'll make it all manageable. Pick and choose, sit and lose, all you different crews. Chicks and dudes, who you think is really kicking tunes. Picture you getting down in a picture too. Like you lit the fuse. You think it's fictional, mystical, maybe being used as a soundtrack to a TV commercial for an internet broadband company here in the UK. Yeah. 
and still sounding great after 18 years. Number four in the UK, number 57 in the US back in 2001, Gorillas and Clint Eastwood. There's something about that that's so mm. grand, isn't it? That almost... I remember it came out at a fairly similar-ish song, to, uh, similar time to Pyramid Song by Radiohead. Oh, yeah. And that kind of um, almost sort of Egyptian-style kind of... Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of sort of ascending and descending scales you hear in the background. Mm. They 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 sort of I connect them both in my mind because like I said they were a similar time. And interestingly, I always like hearing that kind of full what I would call the slow version because there was a, a there was a remix that was the the thing that was actually mm. that was actually played on the radio. That's a much quicker version and it doesn't have the rap on it. And uh, so it's sort of what what we in the bees would call radio friendly, and mm. um, and the Ed Case remix. I wanted to, there were lots of Eds. It turns out there's also the Ed Banger. There's a there's a bloke called Ed Banger that also remixes things, but that's Ed Case apparently. Lots of punnage there. But no, it's interesting. It's it's always a surprise hearing that in full rather than the uh, endlessly played uh, quick mix that was that was doing the rounds at the time. Now, look, welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council. It's episode 404. Uh, I'm Terence Stackham. And not suitable for dry cleaning, it's Juliet Harris. Oh, don't talk to me about dry cleaning. Oh, the elastic went in one of my suits when I took oh, it in the other no. day. It wasn't their fault. It was Marks and Spencer's poor quality oh. manufacture. Yes, I'm putting that on record. Anyway, hello. Oh, the high street's dead, I'm telling you. It's, it's all <laughs> over for these stores. Absolutely. Although, a shout out to Newman's Dry Cleaning in Bohemia Road, St. Leonard's, <laughs> who are lovely people, can I just say. Now, there's one truism in life that history keeps uh, telling us, yet we keep repeating the error, and so everything in life goes wrong. Mm. And that truism is... Never ask the public anything. <laughs> Aren't we living that out in Britain yes, at the moment? Well, that, that's part of my thoughts on this. I mean, many, many people are incredibly dense, and it's far better for them <laughs> if they elect other people to make decisions for them. Esther Ransom uh, is to blame. Back in the 1970s was this grim TV show on the BBC here in the UK called That's Life, which was a sort of must-see viewing for anguished, repressed people who enjoyed endless double entendres. Anyway, one of the key elements each week was when the host Esther Ransom, a sort of lightweight Margaret Thatcher... <laughs> she sort of popped up each week in North End Road Market in Fulham uh, to obtain the views of ordinary working men or women so that middle-class people in Surbiton and Cheadle could laugh at them. And mm. it was an early exercise in the folly of asking anyone in the street for their view. Now, today, in 2019, technology has meant that people with inarticulate and ill-considered views now don't have to wait for a TV crew in the North End Road market. Now they can phone in their babbling nonsense to radio shows on LBC and particularly talk radio and talk sport mm. here in the UK, where if an alien from another galaxy arrived and tuned in. He or she would believe we inhabit a world where people only have a vocabulary of a maximum of 20 words. Now, don't ask the people anything, Jules. They'll only go and tell you what they think. Well, this is this is partly true. So hmm. I, I am with you in that I am a bit a bit sick of this kind of, you know, why do we ask people that don't know anything hmm. about anything at all? I do understand that. Um, and actually, isn't social media a case in point? The oh, bile Lord. that is spread hmm. on social media now. How ill-informed... The, that old phrase, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on. <laughs> the amount of rubbish I see for, shared on Facebook by people who are, you know, somewhat naive, shall we say politely, who go, oh, 
my gosh, it's true. Look at these chemtrails. Nobody seems to want to fact check anything anymore. So I find I find that difficult. I do agree with your point. You know why why are we asking people the the referendum a case in point? Why are we giving people decisions to make on things which a we have elected officials to make decisions on already, and b we're giving those decisions to elected officials because they have more time and expertise than people who don't know anything about these issues. Having said that, hmm. firstly, Brenda from Bristol spoke for us all <laughs> in 2017 when she said, why is she called an election? Oh, what, another one? Why is she called that for? Turns out Brenda was speaking for the hmm. nation. Teresa ought to have listened to Brenda. Um, also... One thing I would say, slightly in defence, I'm not saying that Vox Pop should take the place of, uh, of of elected parliamentary officials, nor do they have equivalents to it. Having said that, though, I have a bit of sympathy for reflecting a range of views by using Vox Pops, particularly when you look at the backgrounds of the majority of our elected officials. There is not, a, there's not, how can I put this? There's not a great diversity of backgrounds and views in Parliament. And one might argue that some, that the reason why our MPs have, in some senses, not exactly distinguished themselves in the last few months, how they seem to be struggling to reach consensus, is that they are in this parliamentary system. And literally, the way that Parliament is designed is adversarial our parliament is um, is different to lots of parliaments in other in, in other countries in parliaments in other countries they have a sort of a u shape or a circular mm. shape that sort mm. of thing we literally yeah. have benches that are let's not forget two sword lengths yes. apart there was a really good ask in the new sentence this week i can't remember who wrote this so i'm sorry but i think it was a guest writer about the fact that they've released images of parliament's going to be um sort of restored and mm. uh, you know maintained fixed however you want to put it in the next few years and they've shown the first images of the um the sort of temporary i can't remember what it is now but this temporary standing standing parliament yeah it's in richmond and, house in Whitehall. Right. yeah and, and it's exactly the same mm. it's it's exactly the same thing. And, and, and this article is really good in that it says they've really missed an opportunity, a time where we really need more consensus. An opportunity has really been missed there. And so part of me thinks that when you've got politicians that are basically trained to be or, or kind of trained to be angry in opposition that seems to be getting worse rather than better and it doesn't seem to be a culture which is solving any problems or making anybody any happier at the moment, shall we say. And when, you know, large amounts of politicians, particularly governmental politicians, seem to have attended the same private schools, Eton, <laughs> Westminster, Harrow, etc. Um, they seem to have quite often taken the same the same approach, the same route to Parliament. So, you know, mm. PPE, Oxbridge, and not, not saying every politician is like this. And actually, I'm not just saying this because I am nominally still a member, but the Labour Party tend to have people with a slightly better, mm. more diverse range of backgrounds. Um, backgrounds, class, sexuality, mm. race, etc., gender, etc. But also, you know, we, the the, the test route at the moment seems to be, you know, PPE degree and then SPAD for some sort of politician or working for a union or a think tank or a charity even, and then ending up sort of maybe becoming a councillor and then becoming a, 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 a candidate. So there's not a great deal of diversity. There's been a really good book written on this by Isabel Hardman. 
who writes for The Spectator, who's always an interesting Mm. commentator. And it's called something like Why We Get the Politicians We Deserve and basically examines how much it costs to run for Parliament and essentially the reason why we end up with people from such a narrow range is that you end up having to be bankrolled by some sort of union or being independently wealthy because it costs tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands to run a campaign. Most of the people I know that have been successful have ended up working for other, you know, have been working for political parties or other politicians because then they can get loads of time off work to campaign because a blind eye is turned to it. So part of me thinks, well, given that the background of politicians and the pool from which we're selecting seems to be so narrow and therefore not terribly good at representing you know representing a wide range of views or rather struggling to get their head around representing a wide range of views maybe vox pops are having to do the job that 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 our political discourse should be doing yes now i'm all for diversity of course who wouldn't be but you see i think there's a difference between diversity and it's one of the other reasons that Vox Pops should be banned immediately, punishable, punishable by imprisonment. Is it's the it's, it's so calm about these things. That's what I like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a very, very, very well thought out view here. Um, it, no, it's, it's it's this modern vogue uh, that simply must have of balance. So if say. BBC News interviews. It's a different thing to diversity, yeah. though. But, but okay, fine. Let's go. Okay, let, let, let's approach this as a different angle rather than necessarily a, a corollary of that point. Okay, so say the BBC News interviews some person on the street in one of these awful Vox Pops who yeah. says that a healthy lifestyle is good for you and that it's harmful to eat. I don't know, the waste from a nuclear power plant. They say, you know, that's, that's, yeah. that's not good I for you. That seems that fairly standard. Seems fairly OK. But then, you see, they must, they simply must find some gormless twerp to tell us that actually it's very healthy to eat 20 hamburgers for lunch and wash it down with radioactive gasoline yes, I, and, and i agree that the bbc is, is is tying itself up in knots and i think there's a background to why the bbc is doing this involving the license fee and it's a slightly fraught political position but for me i i i find i i find the balance thing frustrating because by by trying to say oh we've got to present this as balanced a it sometimes is factually wrong so so yes. it is not good for you to eat nuclear waste that is factually wrong mm. If they're not being factually wrong, I don't think they're truly representing the correct proportion of views. For example, I remember, I remember watching just after the referendum they did Vox Pops, and Brighton and Hove voted something like eighty percent. It was some nearly as high as that. Seventy to eighty percent voted in favour of remaining in the European Union. It was an enormously you know, overwhelming majority. And yet when they did a Vox Pop on the news, they found a Leave voter in Brighton. <laughs> yes, they must wonder, have had to struggle a long time. how long it took them to find that Leave. Because the way it was presented, it was just like, you know, oh, here's the yes, first people exactly. found on the street. And I think that is, and I don't want to turn into bashing the BBC because there are a lot of people, particularly on the left, that are kicking the BBC at the moment. I feel like saying, mm. yes, you might not like it, but A, I don't feel that one person sitting in their room at their computer likes 
squawk box um, is mm. is you know particularly a healthy media institution upon which we shall rely. I'm quite keen on multiple sourced kind of news news institutions, but you know, be what are you going to have instead of the BBC Fox? You know, it, it's 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 Sky is lest we forget owned by Murdoch, so, or, or unless unless they've had to get rid of it now. But it's you know it's it's. I, I, like you say, that part of this is partic- is vexing. I think. I, I, I think we have to go a long way to make sure that our politics is more representative. But equally, the way that Vox Pops are presented is sometimes misleading. Coming next, the world of what ifs, sliding door moments. Uh, that's right after a track that may have personal residence for my lovely co-host. I'm sure she'll explain right after Future Heads. song isn't it i love the fact that it tells a story as well um it's so that's um welcome to your new job i hope you have a wonderful first day by the future heads i've recently changed my jobs and it was and it was my first day earlier this week and delighted i'm going to boast about this for the rest of my life delighted that i managed to persuade lauren laverne to play it on her six music breakfast show and dedicate it to those of us starting a new job so uh, so i've always been a fan of that tune and i was talking to terence actually before we started the podcast future heads have had a very uh, quite a long career actually they've been going sort of about 15 years and they are sort of famous for their their interesting vocals as you heard on that they did a, a quite a famous cover of hounds of love by kate Bush, yes. which i've always been rather fond of and they they produced an excellent album a few years ago that's entirely a cappella that's called rant that's really worth listening to i think it's got some lovely versions both of their own tunes and other people's tunes on that including a cappella by calice which is uh, i might pick that at some point in the future and after I saw you'd pick that, I was reading today some very interesting uh, insights. Barry Hyde of Future Heads, mm-hmm. his experiences with mental illness. And uh, yes. it's offered a new dimension into both 
his uh, life and uh, the, the band as well. Yeah, absolutely, um, and he's also, by all accounts, a very nice bloke, and I would like to say hmm. sort of hello, sorry, thank you to Barry Hyde, who drove seven hours from where he lives in the northeast to play a gig in Hastings recently, and I was unable to attend, and it's a shame that I couldn't because only hmm. nine people turned up. Oh, so I'm sorry awful. that only nine people went to, went to see Barry solo, but um, apparently he drove himself down oh, and was God. extremely nice to everybody. So, uh, so shout out to Barry Hyde, who is by all accounts a, a smashing chap. Oh, great. Right. Uh, well, for many of us, uh, perhaps most of us, our lives are punctuated by what-if moments. What if we had gone out with that girl or boy back in college? What if we had taken that job but not that one? Uh, and, Jules, an article in your The Guardian uh, set you off wondering about some other what-if moments. Yes, absolutely. I thought this was a really a really interesting little article. And often I find my... I think we all in our lives find ourselves thinking, what if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? What if I'd made this decision, that decision, etc., etc.? And uh, there's this lovely little little article, like you say, in The Guardian that is, um, that is talking about sporting sliding doors moments. For those people, I think we ought to probably explain what a sliding doors moment mm. is um so in the film slide there's a there was a film years ago which i really really rather fond of called sliding doors that starred gwyneth paltrow and it was about a woman that lived in london who went to catch a tube train and she goes to try and get on the tube train and the doors slam before she can get on and she misses the tube train and then the film rewinds itself and plays out a scenario in which she tries to get on the tube train and is successful and I don't think it's spoiling the film too much to say that the difference is she either misses the tube she gets on the tube train and arrives home to find that her boyfriend is cheating on her with somebody else and then she doesn't get on in the other scenario she doesn't get on that train and so doesn't find out until much later helpfully she has her hair re- radically restyled um, soon after finding her boyfriend cheating on her which actually makes the film watchable because you can tell which bit is which but it's the idea that what that those small moments in our lives that can change them forever what if something happened or something didn't happen how different would it be and these um, these sliding doors moments in sporting um, Glenn McGrath uh, uh, stepping on a cricket ball. Mm. Um, the only two tests England won in the 2005 Ashes, that famous victory, mm. were the ones that Glenn McGrath missed. Having uh, got nine wickets in the first test, McGrath was chucking a rugby ball around with a bread with Brad Haddon, who was the reserve wicketkeeper, before the second test at Edge Badson, and. Uh, had in through a, a pass that was errant and bounced in a slightly odd way. McGrath turned around to pick it up, stepped on the cricket ball nearby, and the ligaments in his right angle went bang. Um, Michael Kasprausovic was drafted in. Ricky Ponting won a toss and chose the bowl, and uh, it all went horribly Pete Tong. And they said, had met Glenn McGrath, had that pass not bounced, and he not stood on a cricket mm. ball and played, would England been, have been allowed to score 407 on the first day? Would they have lost that test? Um, and if so, would they have lost the series? And would that have altered... Um, would that have altered two thousand? You know, the two thousand for England careers would have been totally different, Jules, because we mm. wouldn't have had the rise of uh, Freddie Flintoff no, uh, because absolutely. you know he became a media personality after that and just built a whole career on that. And absolutely. the rise of Kevin Peterson, it was the dawn of the sort of the uh, and James uh, Anderson actually, yeah. in fairness, who was more concentrated on cricket. But yes, mm. I agree. There would there would be Alistair Cook, for example, would he have gone on to captain England? Very difficult to kind of predict. Also, this is a rather sad, slightly sad one but also an interesting one 
Monica Sellers was a teenager when she won her eighth Grand Slam title. In seven majors between 91 and 93, she'd lost one match, which is a pretty incredible sort of um, stat. She'd had a legitimate chance to beat Margaret Court's record of 24 by her mid-20s. In three of her major finals, she beat Steffi Graf. But during a tournament in Hamburg, shortly after she won the 93 Australian Open, an obsessed fan, who I'm not going to name, invaded the court and plunged a knife in her back. And basically, she fit heel pretty quickly physically but the psychological ones combined with her father being diagnosed with terminal cancer meant that she missed more than two years and 10 grand slam tournaments graf won the next four grand slam titles and a further seven after that and uh, monica sellers has actually said i've grown up on a tennis court it was where i felt most safe and secure and that day took everything away from me but she'd, she said in 2009 she tried not to think about it too much she says i would have gone crazy a long while ago if i'd done that and i think that's a very wise thing to say it's it's easy to play what if but like like we say really moments that kind of altered the course of history really because it does make you wonder if steffi graf would have been so dominant mm. had monica said has been firing on all cylinders and lest we forget big sam allardyce's pint of wine <laughs> Had he not been caught, um, commented, commenting, to, uh, you know, uh, with some so-called businessman that turned out to work for the Daily Telegraph, just think about what would have happened with him running England. We wouldn't have had my lovely Gareth for a start. It said, would Allardyce have been as quietly ruthless about calling time on Wayne Rooney's no, international he, career he as Gaz Salkate was? Would he have been so tactically imaginative? No. Would he got them good at penalties? No. And they said, they said. Um, they said it's not an interesting that sometimes things change other parts of the story change so the guardians arguing here england probably still would have qualified for the world cup and given the path they had in russia they still might have reached the semi-finals but it feels like the other stuff that changes is more important they said would allardyce have so elegantly invited boris johnson to do one would allardyce have spoken out so firmly against racism would no. he foster such a positive atmosphere around the england no. team making people like them again as a consequence of which would declan rice have been so keen to call himself no. english rather than Irish and also where would the waistcoat industry be <laughs> so and and also other, other ideas here Tom Brady the wildly successful New England Patriots quarterback who um, stepped in for Drew Bledsoe mm, he'd been given I the remember. biggest ever ever contract mm. and sustained an industry, injury that almost killed him in the second game mm. Tom Brady kind of stepped in and since then has um has you know obviously been hugely successful, but apparently Bledsoe is running an award-winning vineyard in Washington State. And oh, having so a he's all right. Mm-hmm. Um, also, interestingly, um, to- they said, "Are Tottenham the biggest what if in football? Mm. What if Abramovich yes. has hoped to buy them after all? What if Sir Alex Ferguson had not said no in mm. 1984? He was meant to be joining them, but instead he decided he'd stay at Aberdeen and then ended up at Manchester United." Absolutely, and of course that would have had uh, Abramovich was looking at both Manchester United and Tottenham uh, as uh, his first choices, and of course that would have had incredible repercussions for my team Chelsea because uh, we would never have, we were going we were about to I think uh, call in the receivers. Uh, when, were, yeah, you were uh, you were in trouble. Yeah, I think yeah, I remember yeah. yeah, the whole sliding door theory. I sometimes do ponder whether we're all alive in infinite universes and we're running an infinite number of parallel lives so that every time we're faced with an option in life one of ourselves goes one way oh, one another or another yeah i love that as, as an idea well I, let me tell you about my own parallel lives hmm. moments 
Mm. So I think as regular, apologies if I told this story before, but I don't think I have. As regular listeners may know, I'm a solicitor and I specialise in property law. Now, I was at law college, which is the year that I had to do after I'd done my law degree. And we had compulsory subjects that we had to take. And um, and then we did elective subjects in the second half of the year. But the, we had to take these compulsory subjects. And one of them was property law. And I always rather disliked property law to the point where my landlady used to tease me about it because it always used to be the one I about when I came in I had done very badly I shouldn't be I really oughtn't to be admitted this professionally but I'd done very badly in land which was the equivalent at university in my first year I had got 48% which was only just a past mm. it wasn't even a lower second it was really it was a third it was pretty poor and so uh, you know struggling a little bit at, uh, at, at law college still with it and we had open book exams so we'd had a set of mock exams and we'd had our papers marked and we were given the answer key to the mock exams and, and we were also we were allowed to take all of our files into the to these open book exams because the amount of information that we had to learn was was you know was, was not realistic and actually i th- i th- think this is a good way to take exams because life is open book and being a lawyer is open book and it's not so much about knowing stuff it's applying information to scenarios so i'm a defender of this method and so we went into our exam with all of our kind of our real proper exam with all of our folders and things i remember doing the paper and being rather presently surprised and thinking, oh, actually, that wasn't nearly as hard as I thought it was going to be. That was quite similar to the to the mock that we did. It was, it was that was, you know, that was pretty okay, really. And we came out sort of all pleasantly surprised. And someone met us outside one of our friends, and they said, "You've not heard what happened, have you?" And I said, "No." And they said, "Somebody who is yet to be identified, and as far as I'm aware, never was identified." So the so the law college that I went to was run by a provider that ran five or six different colleges across the country. Uh, there were a couple in London. There was one up in York, I think. There was one in Leeds, and there there were various different places, and one in Birmingham, I think, as well. And they said um, somebody stole the exam paper from one of the locked rooms two days ago on this campus and because it was a national organization they did not have time to write and set a new exam paper they had two days to cobble one together so they based it on the mock exam we'd done as a result of which i got 73 in my property exam which was the exam that i did the best on on all of my exams when i sent my cv out to firms to get a job i had to put my marks on as a result of which the firm that offered me a job was a firm that special specialised in property because they saw what a good job I'd done on my property law exam and uh, I've been qualified as a solicitor for 10 years and I've specialised in property for pretty much all that time. Good Lord. Had someone not taken that exam paper, maybe I would have ended up becoming a criminal lawyer, which is what I wanted to do. (laughs) Well, exactly. That's a perfect example. One of my favourite... Cultural sliding doors, what is mm. that crosses my mind now and then is if that terrible bloke hadn't shot John Lennon back in 1980, mm. perhaps, just perhaps, four and a half years later, it's only you know, under five years later, would we have seen a Beatles reunion at the top attraction, you know, as the top attraction 
um, at Live Aid in 1985. And wow, they and 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 they they you know they would have been the one that everybody wanted, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they? And I can imagine, you know, I mean, you can imagine Geldof uh, putting the pressure on John Lennon, George Harrison, Ringo. I'm sure would have done it. Paul was already signed up, as we know, because he was you know the closing act in the Lennon UK. Lennon would have been the hardest to persuade. It, I suspect would have done, but then um, I think maybe Yoko might have yes. you know said, "Come on, John, you got to." I sometimes like to imagine. Um, it would have happened, and in idle moments, I draw up the set list in my mind, usually starting with "Hello, mm. Goodbye" and ending with "All You Need Is Love." And it's kind of yes. really heartwarming to think and picture that stage at Wembley with all four Beatles uh, reunited. On, I think an interesting political "what if" sliding doors moment would be: what if Margaret Thatcher had stayed in Grantham and had managed mm. her father's grocery shop? Uh, oh, you know, that's interesting. Would she isn't it? would she have run it on monetarist? principles and introduced <laughs> limits on customers spending choices but more pertinent pertinently um the direction of british politics would almost certainly have headed in a completely another course altogether with a, a kind of continuation of conservative uh per, mm. patrician government well, with perhaps... and, and and also my my uh, sorry my my mm. my uh, also from from the on the other team on the red team my sliding doors moment what if john smith had not died in 1994 Yes, well, yes, Tony we, we wouldn't have had Mr. Have Blair. Taken over. Absolutely. Uh, what would have happened? Would John Smith have still won? Probably. Would we gone to have a war in Iraq? In Iraq, probably not. It's it's interesting. Music, uh, other Beatles-related ones. Mm. Uh, disclosure here. It was a friend of mine that wrote this. Um, the TV program Snodgrass, which was written by David Quantic. Mm explored what if John Lennon had never met Paul McCartney? Mm. What if he didn't go to the village fate where the quarrymen played and just ended up working for the DWP, which was which was how David Quantic imagined it. Mm. What if Jeff Buckley had not gone swimming in the River Memphis and drowned? It would what you know, would he have had some level of success? What if Nick Drake's records had sold more in nineteen seventy? He would not have entered a, such a mm. state of unhappiness and unwellness that he'd died in slightly chaotic circumstances when he was twenty Six, would he have produced many more brilliant records? I suspect he probably would have done. It's it's almost impossible to say, isn't it? I kind of suspect in thirty or forty years, uh, our American friends may wonder the same about how their country might be completely different if Mr. Trump had simply stayed on as the host of The Apprentice. Apprentice, absolutely. What if what if James Comey hadn't have, hadn't have wondered about? Hillary Clinton's emails loud and public. He's got an awful lot to say for himself now, James Comey, hasn't he, by the way? Perhaps he could have said this at a slightly more convenient time several years ago. Coming next, why there won't be a biopic of Led Zeppelin. That's right after The Clash.
a fair number of uh, punk tracks, including several from The Clash, uh, haven't travelled so, so well over the decades. But I think this still sounds as good as it did 40 years ago um, with, with its lyrics about uh, political uncertainty and well, sort of civil unrest, really, uh, just as, as relevant today. From the Cost of Living EP, The Clash from 1979 and Groovy Times. Thank you for the introduction to that. I wasn't familiar with it and mm. I rather like it. In the last year, we, we've had what many might feel is the unexpected success of the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, depicting the story of Freddie Mercury and Queen, and a dramatisation of the life of Elton John is released in the very week we record this podcast. And this has set us thinking that there seems to be a infinite demand for product uh, from vintage acts. You bought the vinyl, the CDs, mm. the T-shirts, the box sets, the concert tickets, and now the dramatised movie. Currently in post-production is a documentary marking the 50th anniversary of Led Zeppelin getting together, and it struck me that here is a band who couldn't really authorise a genuine biopic of their career, as it would have to include some really terrible behaviour that lasted many years that simply wouldn't be deemed palatable in the mm. modern world. Shouldn't have happened back then, George, to be honest, but there we are. Yeah, and no, ins- I don't disagree, yeah. yeah. An insatiable demand for biopics, but uh, not for any depicting Led Zeppelin's. No, that's interesting, isn't it? Like you say, there are, cert- there are certain aspects of behaviour that can be contextualised and mm. there's certain aspects that can't, aren't there, really? And yes, I, I, I almost don't want to dwell too much on that, really. But it's interesting what you say about the biopic industry mm. and will it, will, it ever, will it ever leave us? And, and I've got a, a slightly interesting view on this, which is, is a bit of a rehash of topics we talked about before. But we've talked about live music venues. And I think your mm. attitude has always kind of been, oh, well, you know, is it any real kind of loss? And my mm. attitude has always been, yes, it is, because we won't end up with interesting people. And this is a reductive view, but mm. where will our Glastonbury headliners come from? We won't end up with these classic acts. Elton John, for example, who played the clubs for, you know, mm. several years before becoming really famous. We won't end up with these breeding grounds for our, our, crafts to, uh, our acts to learn their craft. So we'll end up with nobody at all, or certainly less interesting, degenerative sort of versions, just the, the same photocopies over and over again so in a way that means that the heritage industry will become more important than ever because with a lack of interesting new products we'll be leaning more and more heavily on the greats of the past if we can't if we can't if we stop ourselves from producing the greats of the future then that's all we're going to have left isn't it just this kind of nostalgia industry jukebox musicals luxury reissues and of course we could also argue, and I'm not a big fan of this pitting generations against each other, and I know there are sort of different sides to this story, but we we seem to be living in a world where 50 quid man of a certain age seems to have more spending power than your average 24-year-old who is trying and failing to get on the property ladder in a zero-hours contract while still living at home with mum and dad. I know some people would argue that, therefore, some... I mean, they're not spending it all on avocado on toast. You might say they have some disposable income, but I don't, you know, I think there is, I don't think that's an entirely helpful view. So, so therefore, the industry has become more and more slanted to people who can afford to, to spend money or have the inclination to spend money on their products, really. Yes, I, I think that's that's so that's true. I think it probably is an insatiable demand. Of course, we've also had uh, in London, at least in the in the last year or so, live musicals of those sort of acts. We've had a, a musical about the Kinks, uh, uh, All or Nothing, one about the Small Faces. Um, it's only a guess on my part, but I wonder if 
um, just going back to Led Zeppelin for a moment, I wonder if concerns again in the modern era over the lyrics of many Led Zeppelin songs is, is, is that's what stops Robert Plant agreeing to Led Zeppelin reunions, mm. which would be incredibly profitable. Um, of course, we always try and ensure that this podcast is suitable for the school run, so I'm certainly not going to quote examples, but the portrayal particularly of the role of women in many Led Zeppelin lyrics mm. is pretty grim. Um, it's though, not of course, great, that, is it, really? It's, it's not, but of course, that never seems to bother the Rolling Stones, who follow a similar path no, in terms but of lyrics. It's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Like touring all I, over the globe. Well, yes, although the interesting thing, of course, is... is the Led Zeppelin reunion that took place previously mm. was very much, it was several years before the age of Me Too, wasn't yes, it? Yes, very much so. I think it was the last one of all, I think it was at the O2 in 2007, or I that may have been their Hall of Fame or something. It was around yeah. that time, mm. yeah. Mm. So, yes, you're right, and even, even more so in 2019. Any examination of both their sort of rock star private jet behaviour and uh, the lyrical content of much of their work on particularly Led Zeppelin 1 and Led Zeppelin 2, it doesn't bear uh, too much examination unless you want to look through, you know, your, your fingers and with a, with a bit of a wince uh, because it's, it's not good. It's not good. No, I, yeah, and, and that's the thing really. It's, it's interesting, like we say, we've talked about how some people who, you know, who've died previously, would they be viewed in the same light if they were still alive? It's interesting, isn't it? Oh, yes, indeed. Well, yes, we have talked about that before, and it's, as you know, it bewilders me that we quite rightly pillarise uh, some people for their behaviour that, you know, have been highlighted from the entertainment industry, and we just seem to give a free pass to others, and I, I simply, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, Jules, when you're not freaking us out with your sliding door stories, um, where are you appearing this week or what's going on in your world this week? Well, what's going on in my world mm. this week? Well, what I've been trying to get my, get my head around my new job. Mm. Um, very much looking forward to Christmas Day, a, a, a.k.a. Eurovision, next Saturday. Oh, is that next Saturday? Some, oh, lovely. It is, yes, mm. I will bring some thoughts on that. Mm. I'm going to be Eurovision party, so um, oh. I will I will have a lovely time. I'm trying to source some lederhosen. If anybody's got some, please <laughs> do get in touch. Anyway, what I do want to tell you about, and, and if anyone's put off their breakfast by the thought of me and Lederhosen and I am Not terribly too. sorry but um, I, I think regular listeners know that I play in a band called mm. Go Bo and that my band comrade is Sarah Corrie she has written a children's book um, with illustrations by uh, a friend of hers I'm just trying to I'm just trying to find uh, the name of the illustrator it's Claire Fletcher is the name of the illustrator it's a book called The Keepers of Hearts and it's being launched um, on the 18th of May in uh, the Fisherman's Museum in Hastings um, there are two readings that take place it's a beautifully written and designed book it's told in rhyme and uh, Sarah's going to be doing some readings from it um, so uh, if you want to get down to see that, um, you look at the Keepers of Hearts on Facebook and uh, and yeah, it's at the Fisherman's Museum which is a fantastic museum in Hastings that was built when there was still money around in the 2000s and uh, it's, got, it's, it's a fantastic building with loads about Hastings fishing heritage and Hastings is a, the, the, the old town part of Hastings Rock and Ore is the name of, the, of that sort of area is really worth visiting it's very quaint and very enjoyable and there's also an excellent record shop only open on saturdays it's run out of someone's garage that has lots of <laughs> 90s records in it that i'm very taken with so uh, so yeah do pop down and uh, investigate that if you happen to be around because i think it'll be a lovely afternoon oh, that does sound lovely um thanks to you for listening yeah particularly and, you i can't believe you're still here and thanks to rona and hilly as well um to play us out jules uh, a track from an album due out this very week 
Yeah, indeed. I um, really didn't know anything about this performer until this track made the sort of A-list on Six Music and was played all the time. And I just was rather taken with it. Um, it was by a lady called Rosie Lowe. She released her debut single, Right Thing, in uh, 2013. Um, and she had a debut in 2016. And I'd never come across her before. And it's uh, it's just a wonderful song. I'm so taken with it. It comes from the album You, spelt Y-U. And uh, I just, I love the way that this just kind of, it's almost like a slinking. It just sort of travels up and down. And it's so smooth. I think it is brilliant. This is Rosie Lowe, or Rosie Rowe even, if you if you are, are as adept at spoonerisms as I am. But this is Rosie Lowe, and this is Pharaoh. Deep these words like a man I found that I have found. 
You have been listening to a DACA Media Production.